the thing is, I, I live in London, and in London, we've got a big EYP community. And even, so I'm, I'm always kind of hanging out with different EYPers here or there. We kind of go out and that those kind of bits that we get in terms of that social interaction in the UIP, um, we tend to kind of relive and recreate that in our own ways anyway. And then last summer, even during the pandemic, I, I did a I did a, a week trip and met Joel over in Tallinn. And we we almost kind of organized that. It was almost like a session <laughs> in Tallinn, but a non-EYP session just with EYPers for about 10 of us plus just coming together and spending that time. So I did, even during the pandemic, have these times where I, I did this. But what I didn't have is times where I had this, plus there was a certain thing I had to work on and had to work more than eight, 16 to 18 hour days to get this stuff done of like, constantly being on and constantly thinking how do i make this better how do i make this better what else is there to do what else is there to do that kind of mindset you get in a session it had been a long time since i had been doing that for like one week flat and i guess that's the bit that i kind of missed and that's the bit that i that i really kind of got when we were there because like the hours we were having to (laughs) we were having to work that was a that was a lot of hours Mandatory note about not glorifying working 18-hour days in EYP. Yes. Please do well, not uh, think that this is something. I, I, I feel we did pretty good. And uh, who, who was it? So, Karen, remember, like, there was that one time we were all getting pretty tired. And didn't who was it that suggested, let's just take the morning off? Was that you who suggested uh, yeah. that? Yeah. Because also, I like, we were quite tired because of adapting things also to the online uh, version mm-hmm. and so on and then i heard like a participant told me oh it's a pity that we are here the whole day and then when we finish the sessions it's already dark and it's foggy and we cannot get to you know have a walk or anything plus there was a team that had some technical problems and they couldn't um finish their work for a presentation and then the last activity that we had the day was presenting the work. And this team were like, oh, fuck, something happened uh, in my computer or something got lost, information and so on. And then we were like, okay, so we are tired. People will like to have fun and enjoy the day. And there's this team with technical problems that won't be able to present. And they are kind of frustrated because they actually wanted to present the work. So we said, why not just, you know, adapt and get the morning free. And and so we also get to rest and then we shut everything (laughs) and, and yeah. And once you relax and chill and it was, I think very needed also because it's, Mm -hmm. it was kind of in the middle of the event more or less. So, yeah. That was also, and that night I actually got an eight hour sleep. Yeah. A whole eight hours halfway through a T4ET in EYP. So like a week-long session and then getting a proper eight-hour sleep during it. And I think even every night, I still managed to get like five and a half to six hours. And mm. I know on a, on a normal basis, like that is not good to do. You should be getting your eight hours every day. But I mean, in an EYP session, in, in a place where uh, we, like you said, we were juggling actually two different audiences and doing so much, still being able to get a minimum of five and a half to six hours sleep every night. That was still pretty decent. Yeah. And I actually, I, I managed to have eight hours more than one day because as we were working in pairs, 
I was kind mm -hmm. of delivering one morning and then the other morning I was not delivering and something like that. So it kind of made it, made some balance between, you know, waking up early and being there for an activity or something and just resting. But I know you, you are like a morning person, so you are everywhere. <laughs> Nathan. I, I, I see see Joel's looking and he knows me outside of UIP no <clears throat> he's seen me okay. like when I go over to his and he tries to wake me up before lunchtime it's a difficult thing to get me out of bed it's just in UIP that okay so that's up, to compensate exactly yeah I think UIP has that effect on people you feel like you have a inspiring purpose to do with your day instead of just relaxing and having fun <laughs> so you you tend to get out of bed in a lot more energized than you would in a normal day. Hmm. And th th this, this T4T, um, the, the funny thing about it is that I'm, I'm now realizing only really night now that I've gone back to work and I've, so uh, in, in my, in my job, I'm a trainer and I'm starting to actually use now a whole bunch of stuff that we were discussing that we were kind of stumbling upon by accident. And I'm starting to use that now in my day to day. Um, and I found it so amazing that in this T4T, we had so many limitations, right? We, it was so difficult for so many people to make it to the country. For those who did, the price of our flights, the, all the tests we had to do. And then you bring everyone together and we're like, okay, let's create some kind of virtual experience for those people who couldn't make it. But then internet wasn't really a thing in the mountains. So then we were combating against that. And because of all the issues we had beforehand, we hadn't actually finalized our in-person program <laughs> before kind of arriving. And so we had an outline, right? We had an outline to show, but then how many days before did we actually build out the modules for day one? Was it was it when oh, we were in the Baku? Previous day? Yeah, I the think previous it was in Baku. Yeah. I mean we had already talked about it. So we had an idea of what we wanted, but it does not develop developed at all. And and yeah. actually I found that it was super like once you are there and you see this whole online world, it's like an iceberg. So you see the in-person thing is just the top of it. And then you see the whole online version is like the whole complicated thing. So it kind of it was okay. If I have an in-person session, I can just prepare it in an hour. But then the whole other things that we were preparing for the online was kind of what made us super busy, right? Yeah. And so for, for, for that online experience, we, we did something pretty unique. Um, we, what one of the ideas was, you know, um, part of our in-person trainings, let's just put a computer, let's just put it on Zoom and stream it. Um, but of course, that was a really bad idea to begin with. And that's not what you should be doing ever for an online experience ever, ever, never do that. Uh, but we were like, you know what, these parts, we can't be bothered to rebuild them. Let's just stream that. But luckily for us, the internet was so bad, we couldn't <laughs> stream it. So instead, we thought, okay, we need to capture it. So we had two different uh cameras rolling we had one at the back on a tripod and one with like a gimbal so like nice cinematic panes across and stuff uh going round we had an external mic in the middle and so we managed to actually capture a lot of the in-person classes in a really cool way 
And then we took this, we cut them down into tiny little segments, and we started to build e-learning modules from them. Um, but it wasn't all pre-planned. It wasn't like, okay, this is a really cool methodology that I learned here. And so now let's try it out. It was literally, we built an hour and a half mod video. And then I think it was Dara who said, that's a bad learning experience. <laughs> like <laughs> trying to watch an hour and a half, that's, that's pretty bad. And then Camilla gave me the same feedback as well when she was like looking at the online stuff. It's like, okay, this needs to be segmented. So then we started to segment it. And then as we started segmenting it, it became more logical to kind of add certain interactions in. And we kind of came up with something cool. So what we did throughout that T4ET was we built, we ran an in-person training, but we captured it in such a way that we're able to actually build a decent virtual learning experience. And the way it works is, um, imagine you've got a class in front of you and you say to them, okay, I want everyone to think about X thing, such as we said, okay, if you think, if you have a, a trainer and a producer, who does what? In, in terms of the role allocation, what logistic things would you have on top of the trainer? And then we got people to brainstorm. Um, those instructions we also give to our online audience and we tell them to do this. And once they've got their ideas, they watch the video of our class having a discussion about it afterwards so when we kind of pick up their points and have a conversation in class they get to listen into that class so what we actually built was a full virtual experience and that's what karen was saying about like the tip of the iceberg is that the tip was the delivery and then the rest of the iceberg is kind of translating this into a really cool virtual experience in which we're pretty far in terms of actually having that online and also, like, something funny is, uh, well, I'm very used to prepare handouts, which is like a document with the content and information references that you send to the participants after the session. And usually it's like a PDF or something like similar to that. And I realized that every time that I go to a session, I want that hand handout with me because it's like, okay, I have my notes and stuff, but you're not always able to take notes while you are discussing or things. So you get that gift afterwards, right? And I save it, but I only read it or I only check it when I have to deliver some topic that is similar or whenever I have a problem in my life that is related to that. But basically, let's say that I check 20% of these handouts and I realized that as, tra as a trainer, it takes similar effort, of course, not the first time because there is this learning curve that you need to, you know, overcome first. But when you already get how to do it, how to actually gather the information and put it in an e-learning platform or do virtual classes or something, it takes similar effort to do that than to do a handout. And actually, you would be providing the participants the full experience again. So they could relieve the session if they wanted and not only have the content summarized in a boring PDF document. So it's kind of a, I think it's a turning point also in terms of how to deliver information afterwards, how to do the follow-up and so on. Because also like we had discussions and we talked about, I don't know, uh, these platforms that have like this, uh, how is it called, a forum or something or for people to discuss and leave questions that the trainers can, I don't know, answer later. 
and you know kind of implement this this in interaction on the follow-up also and usually when I deliver a handout I always leave my email or my phone number in case someone wants something but nobody has ever ever got in touch with me to ask for more information and I think it's not that as useful as like you know a community or something that is alive that they can you know go back to and actually relearn and relieve everything again in a different way of course but here i i i wonder if i could challenge you i i think i i'm i'm not completely convinced in general in the idea of what happens after the training and the follow-up especially when you just give the information to the person because there is not there isn't a sense of urgency and i'm not surprised now that you say that you know, you go through 20% of the handouts that you received. I'm very, very similar. I have all of those wonderful notes in my expensive notebooks that I never look at because the urgency is not there. Um, and so if you are providing a handout or instead of a handout, you're providing a website where a person could have information with videos and it's a little bit more interactive, but there is no urgency. He's not so likely to go back to it, right? And I think like my my way to deal with it is that for me it's so so important what happens in the training room. And that's where that's that's where my energy is. As soon as the person is with me, that's where I can have impact. And then as soon as the person leaves the training room, that's where the journey stops. Maybe it will you know, maybe something will happen again, but in most cases, that's just it and you have to live with it. That you only have this one hour or however longer longer time and this is the condition. Yeah, yeah, I, I get the point. And I also, uh, I've thought about that also many times. And um, when I I do, I also deliver sessions for companies and, and trainings and stuff. And before I prepare a session, usually I do this assessment and I check out like what is the impact or the benefits they want in the organization you know, after the session and so on. And then like the, the session happens and I always wonder like, what is afterwards? What what stays there with them, right? And something that uh, usually is in the conversation for me, and I appreciate that, is when they see it from the perspective that the learning and the growth starts after the training session because you can make it super fun and of course it's adding value to them but actually if you think uh of it like from the perspective that the journey starts after the session when everybody leaves then the challenge is there right it's like okay now there is no stimuli for me there is no facilitation there's no games there there's nothing no discussion here and it's only on me if i want to develop this ability or this topic or whatever so thinking about that what can you as a trainer do right you can provide them information or you can give them your phone number if they want to reach you out or something but I was thinking about like this more interactive learning part as a open door for them to go back to that session somehow. 
And of course, it's on them. And if there is no energy or no reason or no urgency for them, they won't. They they will keep that 20% the same as I have with my handouts, right? And I think one of the really cool things about this approach of instead of spending that time building handouts, spending that time building a virtual experience of the experience lived. I'll find a better way of phrasing that. Materials. But um, (laughs) (laughs) um, doing that instead. uh, Also, one thing that we spoke about is that suddenly you can now use that for future people. So if you want to use that as a pre-learning beforehand for a next team, or if uh, some other people won't be able to come in person whatsoever and need to go through training, you can now give them access to that virtual experience of that content. So which if you just build a handout, you can't really just kind of give that around and expect people to learn. Because here, this virtual experience, we're actually using instructional design methodology in order to build, and it's kind of built like a training. Do you think that the quality of the learning experience is comparable from the participants that experience it in person and people that will later on experience it virtually? Can you compare? Mm. This was something that Joe was challenging me on the other day. Uh, me and him, we were, well, <laughs> okay, the way we were both in virtual reality, uh, we had these headsets on and we were doing some cooking together. We were, we were doing cooking. And then every uh, in between our cooking, we were basically having an argument on this same topic. So I think I, I'm, I'm going to let Joel like start to tear us apart on this first by telling us why the virtual is, no, is going to never replace or never be near <laughs> to the in-person. So go ahead, Joel. Oh, it, it, I, I'm very happy you're asking this questions, Valeria, because Nathan was kind of, what, what his argument was that we could replace a T4ET with a virtual environment, a virtual learning experience. You said that we could replace it with it. I, I, close. What, what I said, I said that um, the way that T4ET is built at the moment, we can probably get about 20 to 30 people, maybe maximum 40 to 50 if we really expand through T4ET every year. We have 30,000 people who attend EYP sessions. We have about 5,000 of them that regularly try to attend sessions. So with those people, it would be awesome to see two to 300, maybe even 400 of them go through some kind of T4ET experience. And what I'm saying is that you can build a experience that could be similar to the in-pass experience, but build them virtually. Now, that wouldn't be just by capturing this, building the e-learning and sending them to that. You would basically be running kind of like a virtual session. You can build the social bits. You can do really cool stuff. And I see Val is like hell to the no. So go on, I'll tag in Val. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my wide reaction. I think I, I, I like there are some cool thoughts coming into <laughs> coming coming to me now that I think could be built into some sort of theory. I think that like you approach the topic from from the perspective of optimization, and I think that's very fair. And I think e-learning is a good answer to a lot of issues. Um, however, when you're talking about T four T, T four T is a learning experience for developing and refining your skills. And developing skills that do not exist and refining skills is a very, that just requires more. My answer to the question if those experiences are comparable or not right now is no. And I have not experienced yet an online learning 
where I could be like, yeah, I can really, this really stands up to par with what I've had in person. And I think T4T is one of those great examples where of the format that I think that in its essence of what we really mean when we talk about the T4T brand of, can only work in person. And for me, T4T brand is this experience of a boot camp where you go there and there's this, you know, you're locked in the middle of mountains. By the way, most of the time, it's it's always these remote locations with a small group of people where you really open up and where you learn, you experience facilitation from a completely new new perspective. You think about how learning happens, you reflect on your own learning and all of those things are as effective and impactful because to a certain ex- extent they happen synchronously in physical space with other people. And that I just don't think can happen online in such a fashion. Especially when it comes to this reflecting on what you've learned or what you are learning. Finding a way to motivate people in an online environment to do that I would say straight out for me as a trainee, that would be impossible to do. Like, I don't see a way anyone could make me like <laughs> seriously reflect on me learning on something like that. And it's so much about this kind of connection that we have with people. It's like EYP in general, like we can have digital sessions we can have sessions where we don't actually meet up with anyone. And a lot of people can have fun with those. And it can be a good addition to what we offer on, on the side of that. But it's not something that we should seek to replace our normal interaction that we have in EYP sessions with just because it's more accessible. Mm-hmm. And even I think... I think social learning is a big part of it. And I'm, I'm a big fan of social learning. And I think the most important thing that happens <laughs> is the discussion is between the people coming together. But Tiferiti could also be a, a, a very soul, like experience of solitude. And I, I don't know what you did for Tiferiti. Whenever I do trainings, I usually take one hour walks uh, just with myself uh, because I want to have the space for myself to think and reflect um, and that is also very valuable and just as how we experience learning now online i don't think that could could be done maybe when vr gets there and it will be more accessible we could talk about this again but with what i have seen now you know best of the best universities the tools that they use it's still not there i wanted to ask this to you like to i'm curious about your perspective on the pre-training on these sessions that happen or this documentation or whatever activity that happens before the in-person training how much needed is that then if we assume that learning is a social thing and then what brings people there is their motivation to be in an experience in a life experience so how much do you think that pre-training processions help actually to learn better? I would personally say that it this is completely depends on the pool of trainees. Like what their background is for the needs uh, for the aims of that specific training completely dictate whether they need this kind of pre-session 
learning or reading up on something. Uh, I think there is no easy answer here. Like, of course, we if we have majority of the trainee pool that hasn't conducted trainings, in the case of a train-the-trainer event uh, in some capacity or another, then it could be very useful to try and facilitate these kinds of practical experiments before it or reading up on theory of it. But since we have uh, mostly the people that come to these T4T events are people that have been trainers in some extent, at least it becomes less necessary in my opinion. I'm not sure if I agree there. I I kind of feel almost for for every training that pre-training is it can be such a booster to the training itself um, for so many different reasons. First of all, no matter what the training is, um, no one is going to come in everyone at the same page. There are going to be some people who are much newer to other people or some people who uh, have different approaches. Let's say uh, I'm the kind of person that I dive in with no knowledge is like, okay, let's see what's going on. Let me try and solve something. Whereas somebody else may prefer to have that knowledge first in order to feel that level of confidence in order to go in to be able to then start to discover. So to be able to meet different levels of skill and let's say different needs or different perspectives from individuals, I feel having a pre-training there would definitely help. But then also, um, it's not just about trying to give someone something to read on theories or something like that. When you're in person, um, I don't just kind of hand out books and tell people to read theory. We, we build activities, we can do things. And when it comes to the virtual world, we can build interactive things or interactive ways of learning and we can get them to start mastering some of the content first. So that way, when we come into in person, we, like in Kolb's learning cycle, we're no longer towards this beginning of it. They already understand the why behind the topic. They understand quite a lot of the what. So it actually gives us space to focus more on activity-based learning to kind of really push towards that, like how side of things we can get them to actually build out examples of whatever it is they're learning so if it's chairing we can start to do different role play activities if it's media team we can get people to actually start working on media projects and stuff like this but normally we don't have time for that so i feel doing the pre-training uh, it gives us the ability to go way way further it's just that when it comes to online no one none of us have necessarily been taught how to run things online or how to design trainings online. We're normally in this monkey see, monkey do pattern where we see other people do trainings. We've seen them do in-person stuff and we know that they're good at in-person. So then we copy that and we do in-person. But then online, we see people and it's pretty shit what we, what we tend to see as like online trainings. And so we kind of feel that the virtual element can't be good. But that's just because people are using this in-person stuff and trying to convert it online in not necessarily the greatest way. And I feel there's so much more potential. And I know myself, I still have so much more to learn. And I feel the more I learn and the more I try, I believe at one point I should be able to create virtual experiences that will be equal to in-person ones. I, I would like to contribute with a little bit of I think for any training, including pre-training, it's you need to you need to know your why, you need to know which problem you're solving, and yeah, I think doing 
pre-training for the sake of pre-training is is not a good decision. Also, pre-training, Nathan, you said it could be a great boost. It could also be a bummer. Imagine you design a great pre-training and then one third of the participants completes it only and everybody else doesn't. And that means not only that they like they didn't complete it well, that's fine, but it means that when they enter the training, they already entered with just a little bit of a heavy load of, oh, I, I was expected to do this, but I didn't have time. So it's they enter in a more negative note and you need to then calibrate that. Um, for T4T, um, for, for the last one that I did, uh, for the pre-training, I think we opted for approach of asking them to complete some tasks. And I think one thing that we did that I remember liking was asking them to observe learning, how someone was delivering some learning experience, and then write a small reflection on it. So what they liked, what they didn't like, what stood out to them, why it worked, why it didn't work. And I think with anything of what happens before the event, I would not actually think about giving them theory, but rather think about how can they utilize their environment? What can they get from the environment in which they're in before the training that they would not get in the training? So a good example would be for T4T, TTT, similar settings. Can you identify someone in your space who does something to do with training or learning and interview that person? Uh, Take the person for a coffee. So they have already some context, right? For example. Yeah, I think this kind of tailoring this pre-training things, whether it comes to a T4ET or just a normal session, tailoring those to your trainees could be very valuable. And I think we underdo that due to the fact that our trainers often are busy preparing for the training that they're about to give or the event in general. Like what we're going to do in the Ankara International Forum that I'm presiding is we're going to actually hold trainings for our chairs that are completely based on their individual needs pre-session. So we're going to have, we're going to hold a training just for one chair if we need to. Like if we feel like that's something that they really need to give into to get the best they can out of the event, then that's something we want to put the time into in giving them. But that also needs to come from the trainee themselves. Like the motivation of what do I want to learn here? It it can't just be something that we plan for them and then that's just what they're going to get. It needs to be something that's motivated by the participants themselves. I, I have a question. How do you validate their needs? If you validate, how do you know? How do you know that when they say "I need green apple," you can trust that they actually know that they need green apple? I mean, I think that that is a very valid question, but I think maybe a bit too difficult of a one to do in a very realistic way of assuming that we could somehow dig out the root of the deeper meaning of what every single participant needs. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. well, at least from my self-reflection in this kind of trainings, a lot of it, of the learning of what do I need also comes from me trying to put that learning in place. Like I, <laughs> sure, I could have, a trainer try and figure out what the deeper thing that I need to learn is. 
but the more valuable learning experience is kind of failing at that, trying to come up with it myself and then try and evaluate if that was something that I actually needed. Then those participants can take that into their future and when when they encounter similar situations where they have learning that they can receive and they can figure out whether that's something that they actually need, if that makes sense. There's there's this uh, learning theory. It's really non-popular and I really love it. And it's called control theory. And uh, the the base the gist is that the only feedback that actually is productive is negative feedback. Uh, so you only can change your behavior, or so there's the premise that learning means behavioral change, and you can only have behavioral change if you're if if you did something and it didn't work and your feedback was negative, and only then you change something. Because if you do something and it works, then well, good job, right? But nothing in your behavior will change. And I think a cool way to do needs analysis uh, is to ask people about their negative feedback experiences and to point them to the past where they did something and didn't work how they wanted it to work and ask them why. Thinking of what you said, Valeria, like this theory, uh, I think it's connected to what you said before, like what is the urgency or what is the pain or what is the need that they have to learn something? But there is also this part when someone does something and get negative feedback or it doesn't work for some reason, there is this internal process also uh, when this person needs to accept that feedback and not resist on it and not, you know, be kind of distance and rejected in a certain way. So it's more like acknowledging that, that was something to improve and that you need to learn something uh yeah to do so i find it super if it, it's similar to the green apple thing like how do you know this person is accepting and you know willing to do uh, the thing and at the, at the same time, I just kind of need to highlight what's been happening in our chat. <laughs> so literally, as we're having a discussion of this, we have Joel giving Valeria some negative feedback. And I, 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 I'm actually going to read it out. Valeria, please don't touch your headphones in brackets. I think you're using them on, uh, as your mic as well when you talk. It's going to be impossible to edit out, smiley face. Ha ha ha, sorry, I won't. So here we have an example of some, like, some great negative feedback uh, gone out straight away. So then how do you feel about this, Val? <laughs> uh, I, I feel great that I was given feedback. I feel bad about doing this in the past. And I think we can evaluate how well it worked by the amount of, of, of uh, noisy sounds that you will have to... Uh, go through in the editing process. I will. We can we can best. see we can see if it increased after this negative feedback or or decreased <laughs> to stay the same. It's practically a scientific experiment. Basically, nevertheless, I apologize to our listeners because that's going to be difficult to get out of there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm very sorry to the listeners. No they, they have a couple of episodes where they had to deal with my editing. So we're okay. It was awful. It's never going to happen again. <laughs> if we okay. didn't lose those li listeners at that point, then they're still there. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. So, so we're going to be fine. But there was actually something I was thinking, which is that 
when we ran pre-training, it was not an objective of us at all for pre-training. But when we ran our pre-training afterwards, we started to then have everything in mind of what we wanted to actually do for the in-person. In the sense that when we were doing our pre-training, we got our trainees to research and to present on specific topics. So they were the ones collaborating, using social learning, finding stuff, presenting it. And sometimes they present stuff uh, and we're like, okay, yeah, this is really interesting. We need to pick into this. Or sometimes they present something we're like, oh, we were expecting something completely different. This is called, cool. this is a gap. This is where we need to focus. And so when you were saying earlier, about about if somebody tells you, you know, I need a green apple, how do you know what they actually need? Well, maybe, let's say, when somebody tells you feedback or tells you what they need, are they just saying something to please you because you've asked them to say something at that time? Have they actually put in the thought to reflect behind it? So maybe that isn't going to be the best source to try to understand do your needs analysis. Um, but what I kind of, I, I, I know we didn't set out for this as, as like the reason behind doing the pre-training, but what we, I feel like we started to realize afterwards is that that pre-training really kind of set up to, we understand our trainees and now we can actually design the training that would fit them and what we've seen are their needs because we already pushed them through most of the, most of the type of topics we want to cover. And so we've already kind of tested them <laughs> on those. And I feel like there we had some really good information to be able to design our trainings properly. And and indeed, I think to me, this needs thing is, is very much of a diagnosis where mm -hmm. you look at your audience and, and ideally, so you look at your audience and you've talked with your client, the organization for whom you're delivering the training or so on. And you know what they their their need is, what their wish is, and you look at your target audience and you see how they don't match, and you ask the question why. So why are my trainees now yet not these amazing superb trainers? And from there you understand how do you design and help them get to the next step and the next step and the next step. Um, and I think in in general in how EYP approaches to training are very 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 much miss. Like I think there is such an um, I, I think needs are very important, but from my observation now, needs are taking us, yes, people have told us that they need 30 chairs. And then they're like, yes, here are the 30 chairs for you. And then something goes wrong and you're like, well, but I've given you the 30 chairs you've asked me for. But there was the step missing of actually checking not what they think they need, but what the organization needs and why now they're not there yet. Right, and then you find out that actually thirty chairs were nice, but they really actually needed, you know, to know how to build a table. Yeah, and if, if we tie that back to like the example that you gave about some kind of pre-training and how that could look like, of asking somebody to think about someone who's run some kind of learning experience to take notes and to think about that, um, if those notes could be shared with the trainers then what the trainers have is I can start to look into and I can build a picture of what I think they think training is. And I can start to, of course, we're not going to completely see their perspective on trainings, but we can start to have a better idea compared to asking them, what do they think trainings are? Or mm -hmm. what is their perspective on trainings? Or which part of trainings would they like to focus on to learn more? Um, because, you know, we, we talk a lot about this going from the, um unknown 
what do you call it? The unknown. You know that 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 square thing in magic where you have like when un- you're not aware un- that you don't know something. Unconscious unknown. That's the one. When you're un- unaware unknown. So like if it's a the unconscious unknown, then they don't even know to ask you about it. It's just not going to happen. And then you're the one who can look at them and to observe that. And I guess with this idea of pre-training, it could be this idea where we're trying to get people into the mindset of thinking that this is this is how things are going to be. This is the kind of stuff you're going to be learning. And at the same time, we can actually do our needs analysis of them properly to be mm-hmm. able to design a training that's actually catered to what they need. And, and, and there, I think also that's something that's very, very important is that if your audience are in this un- unconscious unknown, you really need to make sure that they have the most pleasure they can from their first exploration step because it's very difficult. It's very painful to go into a new topic. So if you design a bad experience for them, they will run away from you. If you're trying to, you know, push, push them in a conflict game or whatever, um, they yeah, the first thing there needs to be happy. They need to learn to associate good things with this new topic that you're introducing. I would like to direct this also at the end of the episode a bit back bit back towards what Nathan is trying to do with his digital training or digital version of T4ET and I talk about a little about what what maybe we could help him with to create this kind of things and an idea that came to me during this conversation when me and Valeria were talking about the kind of experience that the trainees are having during the event and trying to combine that with the reachability that Nathan's approach would be looking for is why, if we are having these kinds of online experiences, what if we could try to combine that with the group of trainees? What if we could provide these T4T trainings and distribute them to the NCs, distribute them to every single country, and then have have them organize local events. Maybe it could be a weekend where people from the same city could all come there every day to do that. Or maybe it could be a, a slightly bigger thing where you rent out a cottage for 10 people, and then those 10 people go to that cottage, listen to that material, and interact with it, with each other. Because online training, it tends to be limited to this, you are experiencing through a screen. But if you could bridge that gap, still have an accessible online training, but bring it to that reflection aspect of it and the kind of motivation of doing it with others, maybe that could expand it to more of the both the good and good sides of having it physical, but also the accessibility of having it online. So from what you're saying, it sounds like the kind of, um, it sounds like the scaling of almost like any training. So if you think about some people out there who've built um, their specific training around something and what they then do is they try to scale it out. So they kind of almost build it like a franchise. So then they kind of build a train the trainer program and train people how to deliver this specific training. They build out all the modules and basically somebody just learns to take that training and deliver it. 
it, it kind is is that the kind of model that you're thinking about there? Yeah, but just eliminate the need of having a trainer at those events. So we could duplicate this as many times. We could have it, if there's enough interest for it, a NC could have it every single month of having <laughs> this kind of a <laughs> gathering of... That's, okay. that's a lot of so, that's a lot of minutes for it. So it's kind of like having... Yeah, okay, okay. I, I think I'm, I'm starting to understand it. So if, if I understand it correctly, it's... Uh, what, what and I, I love that you've been giving me so much credit, but like uh, Karen, Vegan, <laughs> Vladi, Titiana, like a whole bunch of people have like done so much work into that stuff uh, there. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to like steal their thunder too 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 much on that, but um, yeah, as uh, together we've put together a really cool virtual experience of the T for ET. A couple of like finishing touches. It will always be able to be improved and probably go back into into it to build more and more iterations for it to be better and better. And like what you're saying is to kind of take that, but then to build something in person where they kind of watch through certain bits, they kind of go through bits, but then there's a whole program where they're actually actively working together in person to like complete certain tasks. So like, for example, the way that we run it in T3, uh, in Azerbaijan is the mornings were focused on learning and the afternoons were focused on doing. So in the mornings, they learn about something. And then in the afternoon, they would then actually build out a training and every day they had to build it using a different approach. And so the idea here would be, for example, that kind of thing, where they spend part of the day learning, going through the e-learning, sometimes a couple of group activities. But then the other part of the day, they would then actually have to build out trainings. And instead of having a trainer present to do that, they would just need organizers and potentially facilitators. But facilitators more kind of thinking as chairing as opposed to trainer style. Yeah, and I don't think it necessarily even needs a dedicated experience facilitator it just needs someone to kind of lead the thing which can even be one of the participants that you can take turns in kind of leading the thing of and just guide just initiating the discussion and making sure that uh, everyone's but, doing but the same still, thing. I'm, I'm sorry to, to poop the party here um yeah <laughs> thank you my face is telling you i um I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to imagine it from, I think I'm reacting like this because it's a concept that's very important to me. And I think there's, I just feel that I'm afraid that people are losing out on things. And I think just even, you know, when you're at the T4ET, you learn from things like we used to not wear shoes when we would enter the training room, you know, uh, like the small, small details, or you would paint a thing around the flip chart because it's better for the memory, small, tiny details. And things like how do you hold the space for a group to have an inclusive discussion is something that you can only experience with the person who's who's really through the facilitation, who who really feels comfortable in the space. And uh, yeah, I would be, I would want to make sure that people that want to become trainers have access to experience like this. Oh, I again did this. I'm so sorry, but you see, it it worked. Now when I touch my headphones, I think about the negative feedback that I received. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think there's definitely a place for the for the participants to learn from digital resources 
and learn from from everything that's there but i would also want to make sure that that people that will call themselves trainers have exposure to the little things and that you observe yeah. in person i think they're important that's true and it was something that we're talking a lot with karen at the training is we're talking all about the meta and how everything is so meta when I... you're the train the trainer actually wanted to ask you, uh, Joel, if you, I don't know if you would want to share, I was very curious about your criticism and and how how you experienced D4T as a participant. Why, yeah. Criticism towards something specific or my experience in D4T in general? Uh, your experience and from your comments before, I assumed that something didn't go as well, that your expectations were not met. Yeah. Uh... Well, I think there were a lot of things that didn't go the way my expectations were built for the T4AT, starting with how every, how the process with the trainees went. Because I was already, apparently the whole how trainees were invited was done differently with Nathan's T4AT, but at least back in the ones I was doing it, the, the if you wanted to participate in the T4AT, most of the part trainees were nominated by NNC. And being a person that's not uh, super friendly with their own NC, at least historically, that was not very approachable for me. And I already kind of had this kind of negative as approach to it. Like I remember thinking quite... Uh, I remember being very annoyed at some of the trainees at my T4AT because it didn't feel like they were there because they would have benefited from it and the organization would have benefited from it, but more that the NC benefited from their presence in it over someone else. And it kind of already started going downhill when we got the initial list of trainees and I was excited for it. Then during the weeks towards the event, all, well, not all, but most of the people with actual leadership experience started dropping out one by one. So I kind of came into this training event of already kind of having my spirit cracked of, okay, we had a lot of really interesting people that I was really interested in hearing they, their side of it, which is why I was also so excited to attend this T4AT. And now they're not there. And now I kind of see these people that don't have leadership experience and are mostly there because NC wanted their NC wanted them to be there, to have some someone from the NC gain that experience, not someone necessarily that was good <laughs> as, as a as a possible trainer. I think a lot of uh, that that led me into a lot of motivational issues with the my whole participation with it. Uh, luckily, the tra head trainer of that event was an absolute wonderful genius. We had a we had a podcast episode with him later, Sebastian. Uh, love you if you're listening. <laughs> and I learned a lot from the T4AT through that experience of not having my expectations met and being able to talk about that with Sebastian and kind of learning how to process that and communicate that and work with what was after what was there to be get received after it that was 
an extremely valuable experience for me. Also looking into now doing trainings and maybe what if some of my trainees are not happy with it, then how do I relate this experience into what I had with mine? I don't think I've ever put that so concisely before. There were quite a few meltdowns and things like that in Team 4 especially before I joined the, uh, before my times, basically. So. But now we have Val spearheading. We have Val bringing back Team 4 We have people motivated getting this thing back. Whoop, whoop. That should be cool. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to discuss it maybe in the upcoming like sessions and stuff like this, that we're, we're thinking of a whole bunch of different like concepts and stuff for training and especially for this kind of T3T stuff, because at the end of the day, if you think of any, every single person in leadership in UIP carries out some kind of training, it is like if you're if you're a VP, if you're a president, if you're an editor, if you're at HO, you should be training your team in one way or another. Um, and to think of all those people who are doing this, and yet we never give them the opportunity to learn about training and about how to train. So the cool thing about this whole virtual world is we have opened up the ability potentially to start actually running these kind of trainings or something to the masses, as opposed to just for a few dozen people each year. Yeah. And I think all the criticism that Valeria pointed out is extremely valid. My whole uh, approach of putting these thoughts into words in this call was to kind of give Nathan a nudge in another direction of maybe he could get what he wants, but also in a way that we also get a bit of what we want. And there's so many kind of concessions that you need to do when you have a training with a trainer that cannot directly interact with the participants face-to-face, like every single bit of personalization drops out of it very quickly. And we definitely should not, at least in my opinion, replace uh, the T4ATs in the for- traditional format that we have. We should develop them, but definitely like, Uh, There's a lot of value in trying to bring those learnings into the wider audience of the network, but we definitely need to be mindful in not losing most of the value that is there. Yeah, We're going to still fight on this. We're going to agree to disagree. (laughs) 100%. And yet I also think, like, inherently, the idea of making T4ET experience available online is, is wonderful because T4ET is extremely exclusive it's it's i think a total of maybe 150 people in 35 years of eyp um went through it maybe maybe a little bit more maybe closer to 200 but it's still so minor so and i think everyone who's delivering a training in eyp should have access to some basic Mm -hmm. explanation of how learning works and how what is the best way to structure your session um, and some basics about why is it good to do your own research and not just copy things mm-hmm. from your notebook that you've heard before. And I think that will really move the organization far in, in where learning culture is. Definitely. And it's, it's not just EYP. I, I feel like 
um, we have this conversation quite a lot in each of our podcasts on like comparing EYP to the outside world. And if I would compare it to, let's say, my workplace, um, in my workplace, though, we've got lots of people who, you know, they they do enablement in one way or another. Even at the workplace, um, what I find is I've got a lot of colleagues who they they need to do enablement in one way or another. They need to train other people. They need to build some kind of training program. Um, yeah, a lot of people, they haven't been taught anything to do with training before. I was a trainer, like I've been working as a trainer professionally full time for quite a few years now. And only this year, I finally learned about training. Beforehand, I was just winging it. I was just doing whatever I thought best. And so now I'm also doing my best, like even in my company, to try to provide opportunities for people who need to deliver some kind of training to teach them a couple of basics. Uh, how to structure your lesson using format, um, how to do a needs analysis, like these little things that we just don't normally think about. So it's definitely not just an EYP thing. It's a, it's a thing in general when it comes to training is people are just expected to know how to train if they know a topic. 